This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, I I would like to ask you about your column this week, which is titled Immigration Without Open Borders. Uh, I think the issue of immigration always gets muddied by the distinction between legal and illegal immigration. So maybe it'd be helpful for you to to lay out the immigration system right now we have in the United States as you see it, the one you'd like to see, and then we can dive into some details from there. Yeah, well, I mean, the distinction between legal and illegal immigration is best understood by uh, thinking about somebody who owns a house or some kind of a condominium association which has borders. Legal administration is somebody who comes in with permission from the organization. That permission is rarely granted just as a matter of right, except for certain relatively inconsequential things. Um, But there usually has to be some procedure that you go through. You have to present an ID card. If it's a more extensive kind of an arrangement, you may have to present a financial statement of some kind or another in order to join these sorts of organizations. And the power to exclude essentially becomes absolutely critical because it determines the way in which people are included. The power to exclude is not a duty to exclude. People always want others to come in, but they only want them to come in when they gains from trade that can happen. Illegal immigration is a trespass. Uh, You own a particular piece of property. Somebody else decides to come in. It could be a modest trespass. They enter just for a second and then leave. Or it could be very serious. They could kind of sit there and they could start to squat with respect to the property. These transactions are going to almost always be win-lose type transactions in which the illegal person gets the gain and the people who run and organize the association are the ones who bear the loss. And so what the law generally says is that you can expel these trespasses, these encroachers and so forth, get damages in most cases, particularly if the harm is delivered, uh, for the period at which they've stayed there and they've outstayed their welcome. Uh, the system, of course, is ideal. And when it comes to the practice, there's always some slippage at the joints. There are going to be some people who really want to get in, and for some mishap or confusion, you will keep them out. And more importantly, nobody could create a situation which is so strong uh, that all people who are illegal entrants could be immediately expelled. But what you do is you try to figure out uh, how to minimize the sum of illegal trespass courses on the one hand with the cost of enforcements on the system on the other. Now, when you get to the international stage, you have exactly the same problem. Uh, There is a huge array of people who want to come into the United States because of the opportunity that it had. And if you start to focus upon the people who seem to be coherent in terms of their family situation, reputable in terms of the way in which they do business, capable of gaining employment and so forth, adding to the general size of the pot, what happens is it's a win-win situation when people of that sort come in. And in fact, the immigration laws have always tried to encourage those kinds of an arrangement. And they come basically in two flavors. On the one hand, there are the commercial type of arrangements, sometimes permanent, sometimes not, with people who have high skills and stable family life. And then there are also the family-type situations, which are much more complicated. Uh, reunification of a family is generally thought to be a desirable thing, and there are legal passages to do that. The illegal side, of course, is much more difficult. 
you have no particular idea whether the people coming are going to be a net benefit for the insiders or a net harm. How they come, what they do is very much a problematic type situation. But you can be pretty confident that you have people who are starting to sneak across borders, trespassing on private lands, uh, trying to get stable, perhaps by robbing things and so forth. Who knows? And it is just a very difficult inference to draw from saying, which is clearly true, that most people in the United States who are established and who are legal are net contributors to the society, have very low crime rates, to say that that's the same thing about a population that's coming across the border. And there are many problems. In the olden days, when people started to come across borders, oftentimes they had to come by ship and there could be an inspection for health and other issues. But if people sneak in uh, on the back end, you don't know whether they have disease, you don't know how they have firearms, you don't know whether they're going to bring in children and leave them there to be taken care of by the other state and so forth. So if you look at the situation on the southern border, the illegal limitation in the United States seems to be a case of genuine confusion and tragedy. People come to this country, we can't take care of them in the numbers with which they come. And so the whole thing seems to be completely breaking down. So the essential hypothesis here is uh, if you want to admit people for charitable reasons, you want to do it through established channels. You don't want it to be done through this illegal situation. So essentially what the immigration law should do is try to figure out the people whom we want, either on a business basis or a compassionate basis, and let them in through controlled facilities. But we can't let our immigration policy be dictated by the wrongful conduct of other people who gain access well, let's talk to one, uh, one solution that's um, proposed out there, which is uh, let's call it open borders. I think that's not, you know, completely, you know, let everything in, but it's, it's, you know, it's still a system of register, pass some, some health checks and go from there. Um, right now in the United States, we grant about 1 million or so green cards, permanent residency uh, um, uh, visas a year, and many more people come and live and, and work temporarily. If we were to go, uh, on the road of open borders, I guess the three part here, how many people do you think would arrive? How many immigrants do you think we could actually handle? And wouldn't that solve our illegal immigration problem? If you went open borders, I mean, with minimal checks, so that only, it would be a legal immigration system. That is, everybody comes through the established channel, but you had no caps on it. It becomes very difficult. Suppose you have a government like the Chinese government, which says, you know, I think it's a great idea to have open borders in the United States. And what they then do is they then finance the situation. So 100,000 people could arrive in the United States each year, all of whom have perfect health records and so forth. And what they do is they pay people essentially to emigrate into the United States and then please take us in. We cannot absorb that number of people, no matter how you wish to do it. One of the mistakes that people start to make is that they assume that when people come in by way of immigration, the only thing that changes is the way in which they enter into a labor market and try to be competitive. And one of the things I urged in my Hoover column is that all of the restrictions on immigration into the United States by skilled workers on the grounds that they pose a competitive threat to domestic workers ought to be removed. But that doesn't handle the onslaught question. And when people start to come into a particular country, uh, they do many things. They live in particular communities. They may start to vote. They're certainly going to be very active in political actions of one kind or another. Uh, They're going to require education. And what we do is we have a hugely complicated system of public support. And the basic intuition is the bigger the public system of support, the greater the number of subsidies that are given internal to the system, uh, the harder it is to have open borders. Uh, 
if you have a system where the only people could come are those who are self-sufficient, or you could handle a larger number than the people who come in are far from being self-sufficient, including, for example, the children who are not sick, but are utterly unable to support themselves, but are dropped off in this country. So you're going to have to have an absolute quota number of one kind or another, and you're going to have to do even more of that if it turns out that the immigration isn't just voluntary in the sense of individuals using their own resources to get there, but planned and other people trying to assist people to come into the United States in one form or another. So it's a very difficult question. Uh, what's the number that you could take? Well, I'm sure it's greater than the 1 million that we currently have. I don't know how much greater it is going to be. Uh, it also may depend upon where these people want to come and to settle. Uh, there are some communities which may handle more people, but others are not. To give you an idea of how the rest of the world looks at this, it's really quite frightening in many places. What happens is you start admitting immigrants into a country, and if there's any kind of internal division within that country, allowing the immigrants in can easily change the political valence of that particular land. So if you start looking at what the PLO says, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, their view is that it is a hanging offense for any member of their organization or for any Muslim or Christian that is not Jewish to sell property to a Jewish person. And what they're saying is you put these people in there, you give them property, they're not going to have power. And so what happens is they think that these private transactions always have this huge public externality, either positive or negative. And they're certainly right about that. And one of the things that you discover is it's an extremely difficult question when you have a country which is riven with racial disagreements or ethnic disagreements, exactly what you do with respect to immigrants. And the policy that the Israelis have followed, which gets them a lot of trouble, but I think in the end is probably correct, is that you say for people who are within your country, what you try to do is to have to the extent possible a parity of citizenship rights. Uh, The exception to that of course, is service in the military, where people who are not part of the dominant group uh, can commit sabotage. So if 99% of those people are perfectly loyal to the new state and 1% leak information, it could be fatal. And so the Israelis do not admit uh, the basically the Palestinians into the army, um, even though what they do is they try to convent them all sorts of other things to university access and everything else. And you have to do that. But what you do is at the same time you have a non-discrimination clause at home, what you do is you have a very differential and explicitly discriminatory policy when it comes to admissions. And so it turns out if you want to make Aliyah and you're Jewish, you get there as of right. And if you're a Palestinian under these circumstances, you don't get in at all. Uh, This is true of virtually every country that one starts to see. What people are worried about is the kind of ethnic externality, you might want to call it, of large numbers of people coming in, settling there, claiming some kind of citizenship right, and then changing the customs and the mores of the particular land. Uh, To give you but another example of this, there was a huge effort to try and take refugees from the Middle East into Scandinavian countries and so forth. And it worked till about 2015. And then when the numbers got large enough, uh, it turned out the sentiment radically changed because several communities which were consisted solely of immigrant people uh, had their own customs and mores on sexual relationships, marriage and so forth. And there became a real clash between what these groups wanted in their neighborhoods and what the government thought to be the dominant ethos everywhere else. 
So these ethnic and cosmic externalities of one form or another are very, very difficult to control. And strangely enough, the argument in favor of open borders is what I regard as a naive libertarian point of view. You, you, you got the word there, right, Tom? Naive okay. libertarian point of view of assuming that when people come into a country, the only thing that happens to change are the commercial and voluntary arrangements, when in fact many, many other things start to happen. This is why immigration is such a fearfully difficult problem. The gains from taking in productive individuals from foreign countries are simply enormous, and you don't want to close that down. And in fact, you also have another kind of thing. If you take in immigrants who are able into your country, other countries who own these immigrants or for whom they're citizens may improve their own situation. So in strange way, the best way to deal with the immigration problem is to give people in other countries less incentive to come here. And one of the things the United States ought to do if it's worried about immigration is to really encourage free trade in goods and services, because that does not involve citizenship voting and all the other complications that I've had. And that we also, if we do admit immigrants, hope that this will encourage these other countries to be more receptive to people whom they otherwise oppress uh, so that what you can do is get trades in goods instead of talking about simply having trades um, in, in people. So uh, the free trade argument is very powerful and it helps, I think, the immigration problem. Most people don't want to leave their home country. They will only do so if there's an enormous disadvantage from utterly intolerable situation which means the refugee problem coming into the United States is one of the thorniest issues that Let's we have talk, to Let's talk um, a little bit about, you mentioned uh, people sending um, uh, minors uh, across the border uh, because they're uh, protected through DACA and, and other, other policies here in the United States. Uh, in your column, you mentioned you're, you're in favor of, of keeping DACA. You hope that it doesn't um, get removed, but that we need some sort of permanent solution. Is there, I mean, is there any solution that is going to be possible that doesn't still encourage uh, adults to send their their underage children across the border. Look, I mean, you, you, this is why everything has got good and bad side. If, in fact, what you do is you take children who came here very young, who were illegal immigrants, and give them citizenship, the short-term gain is simply enormous. Because what you do is you have a group of individuals who are already here, already integrated into society, often having done very powerful service for the United States in the military or in other type of situations. And then to cast them out sounds barbaric and cruel, because, and frankly, it, it really is. Uh, the difficulty is, if you do this, then the next generation of people who starts to come in is going to claim the same set of entitlement. And so the point that you are making is the pushback on the DACA solution is it will increase the levels of illegal immigration of essentially unattended minors. Uh, I think the, the border's protection solution is better. And one of the things that I advocated in this paper, trying to understand this thing and to get to the bottom, is that what we do is we find ways to assist people without having to take them into this country. And that can include setting up various bureaus overseas under American supervision, which dispense aid to people at home so as to reduce the need for them to come into the United States. Or to figure out what the quota of sustainable immigrants is, keep the legal doors open, and then try to keep the illegal immigrations down. Uh, but what happens is if you cannot control the situation at the border, every one of your policies is going to be thwarted because it's going to be the people who come in who will determine our financial priorities and so forth. And there is now, I mean, serious difficulties in this country. The border counties in Texas and so forth, New Mexico, 
constant police action, constant disruptions of land and Trump, press passes by the immigrants coming in, very strong assertive actions by the border patrols trying to keep them out. Uh, the locals there are literally, you know, frustrated beyond all belief. And the only way you can do this is to kind of make it very clear uh, that you're not going to give huge benefits for illegal immigration. And one of the things about the Trump administration, awkward as it was, is nobody thought that they would get a great deal coming here. Biden essentially has been too willing to sort of take people in and to try to cleanse them in some sort of way, make it just fine. And, you know, you hear people saying, well, every American system has to be triple vaccinated in order to get into a theater, but you can have COVID and come across the border. And what they're going to do is to release you on their own recognizance. You cannot run a country where there's that kind of dissonance, where the payoff to being illegal is greater than the payoff to being legal under these circumstances. And so uh, the situation, which was never good under Trump, and I certainly did not support many of his policies, turns out to be getting even worse under Biden. He sends the hapless Kamala Harris to try to do something about it, but she's pure liability and no benefit on anything that she turns to. Uh, So in the end, what they have to do is they have to get a team of tough-minded, compassionate individuals who understand how difficult these particular trade-offs are and then try to make sensible kinds of accommodation. I'm prepared to put a lot of money into this and put a lot of money into trying to help people uh, who are in difficult straits overseas. But it seems to me if you're actually trying to figure out how many people you could help if you have a fixed sum of money, if you could help them in their own homes and in their home home countries, you're going to get a lot more people saved than you are if you're going to hope only people who take this insanely perilous journey across Mexico in an effort to sneak into the United States. So I think everybody now kind of agrees that it is an extremely difficult problem. And the one thing that is clearly wrong is the model of virtuous citizens coming across the border trying to incorporate themselves into the United States is not representative of people who come in through illegal routes. What we have to do is to figure out, like any condominium association, whom do we want to keep in and whom do we want to exclude? You cannot have yourself a country unless you have the right to exclude, just the way you cannot have a system of private property unless you also have the right to exclude. Richard, last thing I want to ask you about, you mentioned our colleague Tim Kaine's new book, The Immigrant Superpower. Uh, it's a terrific book. I, I recommend it to everyone. I got to read uh, you know, an early copy of it. Um, in, in, in his book, Tim argues that immigrants have been the foundation of America's great power status. And so what I want to ask you is how much of people's approaches to immigration do you think should be uh, you know, uh, through a moral lens, through an economic lens, or even through a national security lens? Look, I think the reason the problem is so difficult, it should be moral, economic, and international security lens. What, uh, I'm a great fan of Tim and of his work and of that book, and in particular, heavily influenced me when I wrote this column. Uh, I was also influenced by the fact that I'd read Ilya Soman's very fine work on the opposite side of that question, ultimately claimed to believe that it's not going to work. Uh, but the reason this is so hard is that if you're just talking about a domestic situation, uh, there is no one, I think, of any substantial means who says, uh, the sum of my moral and charitable obligations to all people in this world are in need of zero. Not only can't you compel me to do this, but I refuse not to do it at all. Everybody, I think, in some sense is in favor of some kind of charitable system. But everybody who does it through the private sector is immediately concerned whether or not the assistance will be given in such a fashion that it will distort incentives. And so one of the reasons why the early charitable programs, which were leery on all of these issues, 
uh, tied themselves to categorical disabilities, being deaf, being blind, or whatever it turned out to be by way of illness, is the basic intuition was nobody thinks that there's enough gain to get, apart from situations of extreme war, uh, to get yourself blind in order to get a small welfare benefit. And so you think the incentive problem is not there. Um, but if, in fact, you give large payments for people if they happen to be out of work, now the incentives go exactly in the opposite direction. There are many, many people who will prolong their unemployment if they get substantial unemployment benefits, earn a little bit of money on the side, spend a lot of time on home improvements and repairs and so forth before they go back into the labor force. And so uh, what you're trying to do in these two situations gives you completely different types of situations. When it comes to immigration, I mean, it's just an insecurity. It's really very difficult. If you want to build up a powerful computer, you know, computer industry and so forth, and you could get scientists who get PhDs in the United States from Taiwan or from India or from wherever else in the face of the globe, the last thing you want to do is to send them home the moment they got their degree so as to make the industry less competitive. The obvious point is that when they come in, they're not just competing for American jobs. They're also expanding the social size of the pie, which will create other opportunities for Americans to work in businesses that may well be founded by foreigners. So on that stuff, you want to take people in all the time on the economic issue. And on the moral issues, I said, you want compassion. Uh, you get foreign people in, you get security. So you do want to have a pretty active immigration policy. I mean, I keep reflecting that, you know, I'm not, I'm a second generation American. My grandparents came from overseas. And I said, now, suppose I was born in Warsaw um, during World War II. It would have been April 17th and two days later, uh, you would have had the old Warsaw Uprising. As a two-day-old, I don't think I have much of a chance to do anything. And so, I mean, one really appreciates all of this stuff um, and, and wants to try and get it to go. The problem is you have to temper uh, this sort of better instincts that we have, sometimes selfish, sometimes beneficent, with awareness that every good policy has its bad consequences. And when you start to realize that, then it's a question of trying to figure out how you make incremental adjustments and trade-offs. And so a corner solution, which open borders is, is unsustainable. The other solution, the Japanese solution, nobody comes in ever, turns out to lead to slow levels of consistent and persistent decline. Uh, and we don't want that either. Uh, so Tim and I are pretty much on the same page. And what happens is if you have the same basic theorem, what you do is you don't, you battle on two questions or disagree. One is how much do you invest in trying to make sure that illegal immigrants stops? This is tricky to do, right? Because many illegal immigrants come here on visas for short terms, vacations, uh, jobs, and then they just don't go home. How much do you spend trying to ferret them out? Uh, not an easy question. And then the other question is, what's the size of the quota you have on people who come in? Then you have to decide, well, how much of it is going to be allocated between three broad classes? People who are economic entrepreneurs who will surely help us, family reunification which I think has many commendable features to it, and then refugee assistance, which is extremely difficult because if your definition of a refugee is somebody who wants to flee from a country which is unjust and oppressive, then all of Honduras could come into the United States. Uh, so it, it's a very, very long road. And one of the reasons why Donald Trump, I think, did a great disservice on this was not his actual behaviors, but it was the sort of stark rhetoric that starts to come. And now Mr. Biden has a different form of rhetoric. Uh, so it 
you need to do is to have somebody who understands that there are trade-offs on multiple margins at every step of the way and gets away from these kind of screaming for a rhetorical thing, which inflame on the one hand, but don't inform on the other. This is a case in which you have to make trade-offs. And the sooner you're aware of that, the better the trade-offs you'll be able to make. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.